Here come the blue shirts. If you weren't awake to play in that kind of game, then you weren't made to play hockey in Madison Square Garden. He's got experience in the streets and in the alleys. <laughs> and in the alleys. He will whoop your ass. And I'm looking better now than I did before. Ron, it's all name. your fault. It's over for all of you. Once I'm on the team. Well, you're going to have to let me dress you, though. <laughs> oh, 100%. You've got that. Hello and welcome back to Up in the Blue Seats, our New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Jake Brown here back in the saddle. Thanks to Andrew Arts, who is now taking his vacation to Disney World. A lot of kids, a lot of long lines. Uh, you can miss me with that, but uh, good to be back here. On up in the blue seats after a little trip to California. We got a lot to do here as the Rangers are coming off a 2-1 win against the Ottawa Senators. We will honor the life of the late Emil the Cat Francis as Pete Stemkowski gives his thoughts on the life of the former Rangers GM. We'll also be joined, of course, by the post Larry Brooks. And our special guest this week was the Rangers goalie the entire decade of the 80s, 11 seasons with the Blue Shirts and the United States Hockey Hall of Famer. He's also the Team USA Hockey General Manager. That would be Johnny Van Beesbrook. But first, let's welcome in the host of Up in the Blue Seats. That would be the Queen of the Post, Molly Walker, and her co-host, Rangers great number 10 ron Duguay. well hi everyone and uh, welcome back jake uh it's been uh interesting week not much hockey being played although we did see the rangers uh, beat ottawa 2-1 we're seeing a little bit of a different ranger team right now which we'll discuss a little bit later as they're not scoring as many goals is there a problem or is it just the other teams on the other side are playing them differently but tonight they play against the washington capitals ovechkin in town with his 31 goals and Kreider with his 33. That is a chase that we're going to keep following. But the man that we keep talking about in net, Igor Shesterkin, who still leads the league at .939 save percentage. He's looking better all the time. And to discuss goaltending today, a friend of mine whom I played with for two seasons with the New York Rangers, John Van Beesbrook, uh, who's always... Uh, has a lot to say, but when it comes to goaltending, he knows a thing or two. Former Vezina Trophy winner. Played eight seasons with the Rangers, but I look forward to speaking with him. But on a sad note, we uh, lost a legendary uh, New York Ranger who I've gotten to know over the years. Didn't play with him or under him. He was a player, uh, coach, and manager. But we do have Pete Stemkowski, who's going to talk about the cat, Emil Francis. And then, of course, Larry Brooks will be with us to discuss a little bit of everything. But let's bring in right now Molly Walker. Molly, uh, what's on your mind today as the Rangers play Washington Capitals? Yeah, I mean, it should be a great game for a lot of reasons. It's Tom Wilson's return to Madison Square Garden. I am sure the Garden faithful will welcome him appropriately. So looking forward to seeing how that'll go. But last three games since they returned from the All-Star break, they've gone two. 2-0-1, yet they're only scoring one or two goals a game, which is something that the Rangers haven't dealt with since earlier in the season. I think it's only happened one other time that they were limited to two or fewer goals in three straight games, yet they're still pulling out wins. But you kind of touched on it a little bit, Ron. Teams are playing them differently. Teams are coming in and they are 
actively staying out of the box. The Rangers power play is one of the most lethal in the league right now. And teams are recognizing that in order to stifle that, just don't even give them the man advantage. So we've seen that teams are actively staying out of the box. And Chris Kreider hasn't scored since he's uh, returned to play from the All-Star weekend. No knack on him, obviously. What he's done for this team this season has been astronomical and it's still, you know, so important to where the Rangers are right now. But when he's not scoring, it reflects in the offense. A lot of it has run through him this season. We'll monitor that going forward and and see uh, how they handle this adjustment in the way that teams are playing them. But Back to uh, Emil Francis, Ron, I know that you said you've spent some time with him and I know the Rangers are in mourning right now. We've gotten press release after press release with former players just giving quotes and reflecting on what a great guy he was and how important he was to the organization. So, Ron, I just wanted to ask you what your experience was like uh, being around him. We did a lot of events together. Uh, we we would talk hockey, general speaking. Uh, it was always it's always fun for me to uh, spend time with a either a former player, coach or manager on their thoughts on today's game. And uh, a man like the cat, and this I would get from guys like Roger Bear, Pete Stemkowski, they would refer to him as a man that was, he kept things simple. He was very likable. Uh, he treated everyone the same. And so he understood, and I think it's similar to Coach Gallant on how he pr- approaches his team, his players, the dressing room itself. He just knows how to manage the players, a very caring guy. And I would see that uh, having spent time with him as he would be in a room full of hockey fans, how he was able to speak the young boy to the older man, to the mom, uh, but a very nice, gentle guy. And, and when you think about his his nickname, the cat. That is one thing that I, I never really understood. I think it was because of his size. Cause you look at players back in the fifties and sixties, a lot of them were tiny little guys. And uh, some of them played in a certain way that they appeared to be like a cat, right? Very slick. And so he was kind of slick and, uh, but he was just a very nice guy to be around. And, and I, I think he was, he represented the brand, the New York Ranger brand very well because he was so light. Uh, so it was nice uh, to be around him. And this week coming up, uh, they're going to share, the Rangers are, they're going to share his memories. And uh, I think the services will be, they're coming up on the 4th and the 5th. He spent the rest of his life in Florida, south of me. And so perhaps I'm going to go and, and see his family. But uh, a very uh, likable guy, and he's going to be talked about. Similar to Roger Bear, he was a good ambassador representing the New York Rangers. You know, I'm th- you made a mention and uh, about the team and Kreider not scoring. And uh, this sort of thing kind of happens when you take a break. You take a couple weeks off. Coaches do their best to prepare their team. But when you take that two weeks off as a hockey player, you kind of let your guard down. There's a physical aspect of playing the game, of course, but you just kind of let up a little bit. And so when you come back, you're out playing, you're competing, but it's not quite the same. And I think that tonight's game, we're going to see a different New York Ranger team, a team that's going to come out. They're going to come out fast. They're going to come out hard and they're going to be a lot more physical. You'll see a little more of a game face on the guys. And so that's why I think, and this gives an opportunity for Kreider to get a little more physically involved. Another thing that happens to a guy who starts scoring, he starts to get away from the physical aspect of the game. He becomes a skill guy and his mind is a skill 
field guy. He's thinking about scoring goals. So a part of your brain is thinking, I'm scoring goals. And so I think we're going to see a little more asserted guy out of Chris Kreider tonight. Uh, the other thing is, as I know, when you're one of the top teams in the NHL in the second half of the season, things change, especially for teams that are competing to make the playoffs. They will do your their best to shut you down in the neutral zone, eliminate puck control. And because uh, they, it's been mentioned how and what happens is that a, a team like the Rangers start dumping the puck in and often you're not carrying it in. Now you're chasing the puck and it's not quite the same game. So they're going to go through an adjustment right now. And, and I think that with Coach Gallant, there's going to be a little bit of both. There are times where you control the puck, you skate it in. Other times it's going to be a dump and chase. Teams are going to treat them like they're a Stanley Cup contender. And what that is, eliminate opportunities, eliminate chances for the New York Rangers. That way you have an opportunity to stay into the game. And that's what we've been seeing. Yeah, Gallant was talking about how he obviously wants a little bit more from all four of his lines. I know that the bottom six has kind of lost a little bit of their grinding edge that they had on a little earlier in the season. Not as drastically as I think some people might think, but I think that they definitely can revert back to some of the ways that they that they were playing earlier on in the season and and I and I agree with you Ron I think that the two the Rangers had the longest amount of time off the Rangers had the least amount of games to to make up so I think it's just chance and and how the uh, schedule kind of panned out for them but I agree I think that it's it's definitely hard to get back into the physicality of the game after such a long layoff but it's just amazing the team is still winning the team is still forcing games into overtime, still winning in shootouts. When they did get power play opportunities, they were op- opportunistic. You know, Mika Zibanejad gets the game tying goal. Artemi Panarin gets the game winner. So they're still taking advantage of their opportunities and being opportunistic, which is a trait that this Rangers team is going to need uh, to follow them into the postseason. Uh, one thing that I'm kind of curious to see uh, against Washington is how the lines shake out. Obviously, that right wing spot on the second line has just been a revolving door of wingers this season. Nobody has really been able to to stick there. And early on the last couple games, it's been Barkley Goudreau, which we all know is is one of Gallant's favorite utility players. He's he'll plug him anywhere in the lineup. But it just makes the lineup significantly shorter. And the other day in practice, we see now that Dryden Hunt is in that spot. Um, and Barkley Goudreau is now on the fourth line. So we see here Gallant is trying to switch things up, trying to, you know, probably get a little bit of a spark into the lineup. But, you know, I definitely want to ask Larry about this later, but I'm, I'm wondering where Morgan Barron stands with this organization, because right now, I don't know how you feel about it, Ron, but I think that Greg McKegg has just been in the lineup for a couple more games than he should be. I think that it could be time to give a look at Morgan Barron. Well, I agree with you. I think that the coaches, uh, there are certain players that coaches feel like they can trust them uh, defensively with the puck. And he's that guy who's been around and uh, you just kind of plug him in there as a, as a safety player. Absolutely. He's a safe option. Yeah. And he does. And, and he's inexpensive also. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing. When, when you're looking to fill in your roster, under a salary cap, he's not costing you a whole lot of money. And that happens on teams where they got high-end paid players. You need a few guys that are not making a whole lot of money that can still play to be able to afford those other players. So I think he's that type of guy. I want to move away from him and talk about Heedle. Heedle's the player that uh, you wonder, what is it that they're thinking with him? And without knowing what's going on with management, I I think he's that guy that – because. We've all thought that on the wing, he would be a better player because he's just he hasn't been 
proven because this is four season, I believe he hasn't been proven to be a solid centerman as far as the top two lines. And they keep putting him back at center on that third line. Now he doesn't look bad, but he's not scoring. Is it that they continue to keep them there to build it as a better centerman to be a better trade bait? Because as a wing, if they're thinking about wanting to trade him, that's what you do. You just keep him there and uh, he's going to be traded as a centerman because most teams are always looking for a centerman versus a winger. Winger, you can find them all day long. But a good centerman, that's a little more difficult. So are they building him? To be that guy that's going to be traded, I'm not so sure. But when he when it comes to how does he fit in with the New York Rangers, I like him on the wing. For him, he, there, it's less responsibility. He's got good speed. He can go wide and handles the puck fairly well, uh, and, and he can score. So why they brought him back to the middle, that I'm not quite sure because – you know, you and I, we hear all the frustrations of the Ranger fans. The team keeps winning, but what about this and what about that? Why is he doing this? Why are they doing that? Uh, everyone's got their opinion, but one of them is about Heedle. Uh, what is it that they're thinking with Heedle? Right. And, you know, that's the ultimate question. I think that part of me wants to say that Heedle is on the table, and I think that for the right deal, he would be. But I also think that the Rangers are hesitant to send him elsewhere and watch him blossom on another team, because that obviously would be incredibly frustrating. This is actually his fifth season with the Rangers, and he still has not captured what his identity is. Is he a power forward? Is he a playmaker? Is he a winger? Is he a center? So it's just there are just a lot of moving questions around Heedle, and I think that they're anxious to find out what they have in him. And I agree with you. I think that his skill set is better fit for the wing rather than center. But where he is right now on that third line, it's just not, they're just not doing, it's just, it's not working. It's not. It really from the drop off from the top two lines to the bottom six is, is a problem. And one that we all can expect Chris Jury to address sooner rather than later. It's just a matter of, of when. Can you help us and understand the Patrick Nemeth situation? Because here's a big guy that he's 6'4", 230. He's been really steady. He's the type of guy that you want. If you're going to go deep in the playoffs, 30 years old, he's been around veteran. What is it that they keep talking about possibly they may trade him? And I don't get that. I know they have a, an abundance of defensemen. I don't understand him. Is that for real? Definitely think it's a possibility. I don't think he's one of the players that are considered an untouchable by no means. So again, for the right, they did just sign him in the offseason to a three-year deal, I believe. So I think that in an ideal world, he would be a seventh defenseman for them. And that's, I think, what they're trying to work toward, which would entail trading for another bottom pair defenseman to a line next to Braden Schneider. Some probably a two-way defender with a bit of veteran experience in him. Um, and then having someone like Patrick Nemeth as the seventh for a depth guy. Um, but obviously that's not the case right now. They need him in the lineup at the moment until they do have reinforcements on the back end. But, you know, Nemeth, I know a lot of people have their opinions on him, and but he really is a veteran presence back there. That is what he brings. He's calm. He's collected. And putting him next to a guy like Braden Schneider, it just kind of balances out a little bit. Yes, does he have his moments? And yes, we've seen him get turnstiled before. You know, everybody has seen it. But right now, he is their best option for a third pair defenseman. And I know people want to say, oh, Zach Jones. And the Zach Jones-Braden Schneider pair was, was great. And I think that the Rangers could roll with that too. But I think right now, 
especially in someone like Galant's eyes, the veteran experience and that presence kind of outweighs any sort of offensive upside that they would get from Zach Jones. I think what I'm starting to gather is is Gallant will more often than not choose the safer, more reliable option that he's sure of, which is, I think, you know, a valid way to go about things. Rangers fans will be looking to see what Chris Jury does in the next couple of weeks before that trade deadline on March 21st. They're also looking forward to Thursday, the showdown, the nice matchup where the Rangers take on the Capitals at the Garden. 69 points to 65. This thing could get tight. The Blue Shirts need a victory, and we'll be back next week a little bit earlier, so stay tuned for that. Likely on Wednesday, Rangers got the Capitals, Penguins, and Canucks coming up, but we got a lot to do in the rest of this program. Coming up later in the show, you know, let's just call him Ron VBK, the Beezer. Johnny Vambies Brook. We also have Larry Brooks, who will touch on the Rangers, the roster, Emil Francis. But coming up next, you will hear a voicemail from a guy who played under Emil Francis when he was GM, and that would be friend of the program, Pete Stemkowski. Listen to what he had to say about the cat. Well, I got traded from the Detroit Red Wings to the uh, New York Rangers, uh, not really knowing what to expect as a visitor coming into New York and you're from, uh, from Western Canada. All you saw was big buildings and, you know, and uh, an airport and a hotel and you left and say, how could people live here? But uh, I ended up living in Long Beach and being introduced to Emil the Cat Francis. And uh, the first day, we, uh, a couple of days, we took a road trip. So I ended up having lunch with him uh, because I hadn't really had a place to live yet. And uh, he pretty well laid the, the law. This is how we play. We're very firm and we're out to win a Stanley Cup. So that was encouraging to hear from Emil Francis. In the several years that I was with him, I wasn't a harder worker for a guy that was 100. 50 pounds, full of energy, and he was just a class guy, you know, when he, when he spoke to you, you liked him, he never yelled or screamed at anybody, but he, he had high expectations, and he treated, whether you were the superstar on the team, or you were the guy that sat in the, in the press box as the extra, he treated you equally, and that's, that's the thing I liked about him, a couple of our players had some problems off the ice, a car accident, one, and I know he was there, he was more concerned, how are they, are they okay, why are they, we should go to and he, he cared about what happened to you when, when you left the rink, and I think that was the humane thing about Emil Francis and I always will tell people uh, playing in New York we came very close in the early 70s to winning the Stanley Cup we had a great team with the gag line the one regret that I have in 15 years in the National Hockey League I won one Stanley Cup with the Toronto Maple Leafs in 67 but I have to say the biggest regret I got is we did not win a Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers under Emil Francis and I think had we won the Stanley Cup I would have been more happy for Emil Francis than I would have been for myself just a tremendous human being a great ambassador to hockey and what he to get hockey off the ground here in New York and set up the arena here in the city of Long Beach. He and Nassau County, city of Long Beach, put their heads together. They come up with the money, and there's an ice rink standing here in Long Beach, and we can certainly thank Emil Francis. Effortless work, work about 12 hours a day, and a great man lived a full life up until 95 years of age. Emil Francis, great memories. Rest in peace, my friend. I have the highest regard for him, and I always say if I pick the top 20 people I met in this game in 50 years, he would be in the top two or three. Emil Francis. Thank you. Hockey Hall of Fame Rangers beat writer at the post, Larry Brooks. I, I think there's room for different styles. There's room for different resumes. Are you sick of me? 
after spending three straight days in the car next to this face. <laughs> it was a rather pleasant experience, I have to say. Because you've been doing this, what, for over 40 years. It's an important part of the experience to understand the fabric of a team. Giving Henrik Lundqvist his nickname is, is one of the coolest things in my entire career. He blames or gives credit to you for that nickname, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, Lara, I'm in agreement with you. No. <laughs> okay. It was great to get to know Brooksy, and he became part of my journey. You know, he was there every day. One year, the Islanders gave out bathrobes that uh, lasted for about a game. You know, guys were walking around in their bathrooms like, what, what is this? We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. All right, can we ask Larry a, a, a yeah. hockey question? We- it's a two-part answer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So we welcome in our own Larry Brooks. Larry, we just finished chatting with uh, Pete Stemkowski because this week on our show today, we're going to be speaking and going back into the life of uh, the cat, Emil Francis. What are your thoughts and memories uh, of the cat? Well, I I think, uh, you know, he was the godfather of of modern Rangers hockey, the founding father, however, whatever phrase you want to use. He invented the Rangers in the mid 60s. You know, at that point, the Rangers were a decaying franchise. I I don't really quite understand why, but, you know, they were in disrepair. Players wouldn't report to New York. Red Kelly was traded from the Red Wings to the Rangers and he refused to report. He retired. You know, he opted to retire instead, and then he went on to be traded to Toronto. So Emil came in in the mid-60s and basically created an organization in his image. He created the, uh, he picked the players. He moved the team out of the practice rink across from the garden at that point, which is on 50th Street. He brought everybody out to the island, to Long Beach, and he created a community and a bond. And it's interesting, too, because I was talking to, I was actually texting with Brad Park the other day. And Brad was was so bitter for the for a few years after he was traded. He was really angry that he was traded. He was upset, but he loved Emil Francis. Uh, he could you know he couldn't stay mad at him. And I think everyone on on that team felt the same way about him. He he, he had some flaws. And, and the interesting thing was the the fans, the the generation of fans that grew up rooting for that team understood Emil's flaws, but kind of loved him anyway. I mean, I don't think it was exactly the same back then as it is now. And of course, at that point, their cup drought was only in, in the 30s, and not and you know it didn't reach up to 54, and now it's not back up again into the into the mid 20s. But it was kind of like, you know, it was a great team. It was an entertaining team. Guys, you know, who came through the system we, you identified with. Then guys like Stemkowski and Teddy Irvin and, and Tim Horton was here for a while. You know, uh, Emma would bring them in to augment the team. And it almost seemed as if winning was secondary to being this entertaining big time team. I know it was disappointing for us as fans, you know, not never to win, but it kind of rolled over because we love those guys. And then when Emil finally traded them all and then he was gone, I mean, the next year or two, I mean, you, you know, you, you came in in the, in the wake of that, you know, a couple of years later and the entire organization basically had turned over under Fergie and then Freddie. But Emil, you know, there, there are no modern day Rangers without Emil Francis. And um, I think everyone who, who relates to that team just thinks of it as Emil's team. You know, yes, there was Eddie Jockman and yes, the gag line and yes, Brad and and yes, the bulldog line. But it was all Emil. It was Emil's team. It was it was Emil's era. You know, the circle of life one by one they're passing. It's hard for you. Know, it's hard. It's hard. Larry switching to the current Rangers, you caused quite the stir writing how the Rangers could use someone like a certain longtime Islander named Cal Clutterbuck 
I definitely see what you're getting at, even if it is a fantasy land idea. But really, how glaring is the Rangers' need for that kind of player? Well, they have a glaring need for a third line. I know Clutterbuck's played on the Islanders' identity line, which is you know has been their fourth line. But you know, he to me, he's he's a you know he's a third line player in the NHL. I've seen him now for the last three years in the playoffs and see how effective he is. Uh, he has done real damage to the Rangers, both psychologically and physically over the years. They need multiple people like Clutterbuck. Uh, that, that's to me, the, the and, I, and you know, I, I've, I've written this since the summer and we've talked about it a number of times, but they, they have to define their third line in some way, right? Now, their third line basically has been players who just don't quite fit into the top two lines. You know, if you're not a top six guy and you're not really a fourth line guy, then you, you wind up on the third line. And, you know, you wind up with these disparate parts who never have quite clicked. There was a stretch where they had the uh, Lafreniere, Heedle, uh, Gauthier line together for a while in, in November and December, and they created chances, but they didn't score, and then they stopped creating chances, and then the line was broken up. There's just been very little consistency out of that line. There's been no production out of that line at all. That line has scored 10 goals this year in 50 games. And and I've always thought, and, and I know Gerard Gallant disagrees, and you know, he has the last word, but – you know, he he kind of looks at the third line as a third scoring line. And and I think if they had the depth, it would be great, too. But they don't. And so I don't understand why they haven't attempted really to make that into a grinding checking line. I mean, they've got Goodrow. You know, he, he's the you know, one of the ultimate third line players the last last year. Why not build a third line around him? And if you're building a third line around him, then you'd want someone like Clutterbuck to be his sidekick. But again, you know. Clutterbuck, there are all sorts of qualifiers when you're talking about Rangers dealing with the Islanders and Rangers dealing with, with New Jersey. In, in, in my experience, seeing guys like Bobby Holik come over, seeing Scott Gomez come over, seeing Bruce Driver come over from New Jersey, it's very, very difficult for guys to make the transition from being a big-time devil slash Islander, I think to becoming a Ranger. And, you know, it, it would be, I think, even one thing if you did it in the offseason, you'd have some time. But here you'd be asking Clutterbuck, a guy who has, you know, whose job description is to destroy the Rangers overnight to put on that uniform. I'm not sure how it would work with the fan base. It's, it's very complicated, but... He is the personification of what I think the Rangers need. And that's not that's not exclusively what the Rangers need. But I, I think when you look at their team and you look at a weakness, it's the third line. Um, and their bottom six is just, as I wrote the other day, come to a grinding halt. And, you know, they've just stopped. And so Gallant is going to make a change or two for the Thursday game against Washington. But that's something that needs to be bolstered, if not repaired, going into the playoffs. Kind of going off of that, just in terms of players who could be on the third line, where do you think Morgan Bass? Aaron stands with the organization and do you think the Rangers should be giving him a shot right now? I'd like to see him get more of an opportunity now. He's had, you know, he's he's been in, he's had his eight, nine minutes. I think he's regarded as 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 a legitimate prospect by the team. I, I don't think that's changed. Maybe they think he's a little bit away. Maybe he is. But you know, I would like to see him get more ice time. Listen, I know Greg McKay's a hard worker. You know, he's a he's a good teammate. 
Um, he's been he's been excellent killing penalties, but I, I think his ceiling is kind of defined, and it's it, you know we know what it is. Um, we don't know really what Morgan Barron's upside is at all at this point. Or at least I I don't. You know they see him a lot more. They you know they watch him intently at practice. They run back the tape. They they've seen him play in Hartford all year. I haven't. I'd like to see him get more of a shot. Yeah, because I because I, again I, I think you you need to the the upside is is you know so limited on some of their bottom six. Guys guys that I'd like to see a guy with a little more upside. And I think that's what Baron brings. Well, this was great as always, Larry. Thanks for your time. And we'll chat again next week. Thanks, guys. Good talking to you. Jake, what the heck are you wearing right now? The Olympics may have just ended, but we're going to keep it going a little bit here with our guest this week. The Rangers drafted him 72nd overall in 1981, and he went on to play 11 of his 20 seasons in the NHL in New York, which included a Vesna Trophy winning season with the Rangers in 1986. He also played for the Panthers, Flyers, Islanders, and Devils before he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2007. He was named Assistant Executive Director of Hockey Operations for USA Hockey in June of 2018 and served as General Manager of Team USA over in Beijing the last couple weeks here. Please welcome John Van Beesbrook. John, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Thanks for having me on. It's good to be with all of you Ranger fans. So it was your first time serving as GM of Team USA, and we just found out you told us that you weren't able to make the trip, unfortunately. But your head coach, David Quinn, had told me about how you had to prepare with a pool of players with NHLers and one without. What was that like for you, and and did it make the job any more difficult? What we told the players is what I'll tell you now is everything was going to be hard and everything turned out to be hard. As you referenced, I wasn't personally able to get to Beijing because of the COVID measures. Drove 33 hours home from LA. But aside from that, the players and the coaches are what matter the most. And we had to do a quick pivot after we found out that the NHL players were not going to go. Uh, As everybody recalls, that was right around Christmas time. And uh, it wasn't a present for us, that's for sure. We had to turn our attention to a bunch of players that we had available to us from the NCAA, players that had signed AHL-only contracts, and then players playing in Europe specifically. So we got to identifying with Coach Quinn who you know, what type of team we, we wanted to have and how we wanted to play. And then we could, we could get players to play to that identity. And, and we re- we really did that. We had a good tournament. We had a couple bad bounces. Uh, if you watched and all GMs will tell you that, you know, you don't, you get bad bounces. That's why you lose. But in essence, we were a very good team. Uh, we were fast. We were quick. We were young, youngest team in the tournament. So but the Beijing experience um, for the players and the coaches, now that they're returning was a, a real good experience for the game. I think uh, the rest of all the other stuff that went on there will leave to everybody's uh, intuition. Unfortunately, fell short of the podium and you just kind of touched on it a little bit there. But how did you feel you guys did overall? It, it is a tough tournament. Just how would you evaluate how it went? Did you learn anything? Yeah, I, I think the quick evaluation is um, why we have a bitter taste and a sour feeling in our stomach. I think that um, we did play to an identity. We were probably the fastest team in the tournament. Uh, We tried to select players that were the quickest uh, in order to get on top of other teams to cause turnovers. And I think you saw that play out. The results are are hard. Finland had beaten Russia in in a past tournament going into the Olympics. They have, they have breaks in their schedule to allow their club teams to put together their special Olympic teams and world championship teams. They set up their whole 
season based on world championships and, and Olympics. So we knew that we had a challenge by putting a team together in short order, six days of practice, you know, obvious uh, when it gets to power plays and specialty teams, you know, they don't react and effectively have that continuity. So we knew we were going to that, but we had the energy. Uh, we won our pool. We are you know, the first rated team going into pool play or metal play. And, and we lost on a couple bounces. So that's the way the game goes. And we we accept it, but we're very proud of our team and our coaches. Johnny, uh, turning our attention to the current team, the, the New York Rangers, um, there's a lot of talk right now on why the Rangers are doing the way they are. In, and that has a lot to do with the goaltender, Igor Shesterkin, a guy that comes in. Um, they assumed that he was going to be as good as he is now after Lundqvist. But when uh, analysts talk about the New York Rangers, they talk about goaltending, goaltending of the past. You know, you got Lundqvist, you got Richter, and you have yourself. And uh, even when you go way back at it, you Jackman. So how do you feel like for yourself, I can ask you this, and please be honest, how do you feel like, how do you fit in? Because you're a Vezina Trophy winner. You fit in with the rest of these goaltenders. Were you satisfied with your time as a New York Ranger goaltender? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have probably a different way of, of describing it than, than maybe uh, the world does in the way of, you know, rating on, on wins and losses and results and things like that. I look at it as, you know, how did you impact the team? Did you have an impact on the team and, and was it served well? So I think that, you know, my time there, um, you know, I impacted the team. However, as you go through the time and you reflect back on it, it looks a lot different than when you're in the middle of it. We had a lot of regime changes while I was there. Herb Brooks was the coach of the team when we first got started. When I first got started there, you know, I had to learn how to work under his his um, direction. Things changed a lot. But if I had to summarize it, I, I think that I would just say that I, I believe that I had an impact, left one there for everybody else to determine. You know, we have to understand that we have shootout now at 115 ties. If you could convert those ties or half of them into wins, you know, I'd be well over 400 wins. And I don't say that as, as I'm disgruntled or anything. It's just the facts. Like you can't get an overtime loss anymore in you know, since those stats have come into play, it elevates the winning side for Shesterkin and Lundqvist and some of those other guys. But I don't regret it at all. I mean, I think that uh, I was very grateful, obviously, playing for the Rangers, a story team, original six. You know, and you realize after a while, you know, you need the game more than the game needs you. So I was just very fortunate. And I look at it at that as I, I let everybody else make the determinations and we're where I would sit. But I mean, you know, I, I love the way that right now the goalies have had an impact on the Rangers. I mean, they've had decades of good goalies. It's so hard to find on other teams. Uh, you look across the river and see how fortunate they were with Martin Brodeur, and now they're searching and they've been in a constant search. And it's a hard thing to come by when you can get a generational goaltender and then you get two in a row and three in a row. You got to be pretty fortunate to do that. So why don't we talk about the stick handling? Because everyone's so impressed with his stick handling. And as you, as you're analyzing a goaltender and compare yourself to your stick handling to the goaltenders of today, or even Marty Berdour was a, a guy that handled the puck. Was it something that you thought you needed to be able to manage the puck and help your defenseman? Yeah, I never played inside the trapezoid. Uh, the trapezoid came in via Marty Brodeur, really, because he went out and stopped some pucks and became like a third defenseman back there. But stick handling is one thing I, I saw Shishkin almost score a goal against Ottawa the other night, and uh, I was happy that he he flung it down the ice to give it a try. And I love 
see the smile on the face after, you know, trying something different. There's a difference in, in puck play in relation to how you effectively work with your defensemen. The Rangers are, you know, they have some good puck handling defensemen. I think you want to get the puck in the hands of Adam Fox before they're in Igor Shesterkins, but it's also about what time of the game and say power play specialty teams. I used to make mistakes all the time trying to see the guy. I'd see Ron Duguay on the right side with the ice flying high there, and I'd want to hit him with a long pass. But meanwhile, Ron Duguay was out of gas and heading to the bench. That was probably not a good play. I caught myself oftentimes early in my career wanting to make that hero play. And so after a while, you identify uh, what the situation is. And I I find that a lot of guys and people get themselves in trouble when they try to do too much. John, as a fellow goaltender, what do you appreciate about watching Igor Shosturkin, just knowing what it's like to be between the pipes and and what the position entails? What what about him do you appreciate the most, would you say? Well, I think his mindset, you know, I look at that of how you bounce back after goals, um, the mental approach of the game. He doesn't seem to get, you know, shaken up by he has a bad player, a goal against. I think that's what the team's looking at too, is how do you bounce back? But I mean, his mechanics are really good. Obviously he's um, been well taught uh, structurally he's sound and they take a lot of pride in the structure of the goalies. You know, a lot of the Allaire's, you know, teach a specific style. Benny's been a great teacher and, and look at the impact he's had on two outstanding goalies. Plus the other goalies that are, that jump in and play as well. I think that there's something there. I don't know exactly what the secret sauce is there, but keep it going. You know, I mean, as far as Igor is concerned, I think that um, he comes in a little unheralded. He had big shoes to fill following Henrik Lundqvist, but I think his mechanics, his mental makeup and the fact that he doesn't get too shaken up in that, that is, are probably his strengths. Whenever we have a former teammate of Ron's on, we have to ask them about a most memorable moment from your time with him. Actually, um, one of the most memorable times is when we played an alumni game together. Uh, it was in Philadelphia. It was the Rangers against Flyers, one of the one of the winter classics. And we were playing and Philly had Bernie Perrant in that. And I remember talking uh, to Ron about just don't shoot it at his head. You know, like we got to have respect. And Ron got a, a breakaway and shot it right into his pillows. And I thought a great piece of respect because he probably could have deked them and, and, and showboated them. But Ron's always been a classy guy and a classy player. So that's what I remember about him. Wow. Would you look at that? <laughs> Molly, I, Molly, I'm going to add to that. So John, we are teammates. This is after Studio 54, Ron. All right. So he, John was around me when I was married with kids and I had settled down. So he saw the different Ron. He saw your wholesome side. He didn't see yeah. your, uh, your party <laughs> side as much. We'll go with the good stuff. Last one. Did, did you ever party with like the Mets and the Giants during the time in the 80s? You guys were making the playoffs every year. The Mets go to the World Series. They almost make another one. The Giants win a Super Bowl, two Super Bowls. Did you guys hang out together and party at all? No, we bought tickets to their games and went and watched <laughs> Good teams play. The Giants won the Super Bowl. As you said, the Mets were uh, unshakable at the time. But I mean, American League fan. So I'm a Tiger fan from Detroit. So I went to a lot of America. I love the Yankees too. So that time was a special time for sports in, in New York. I just, I'm fortunate that I was actually there for that, that period of time. Well, this was great, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we'll have to have you on again soon in the future. All right, let's go Rangers. Nothing is the same as the sports fam, the professional sports team in New York. 
All right, Ron, that wraps up episode 77, the Phil Esposito edition, friend of the program, up up in the blue seats, our Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Yes, Jake, uh, thank you for producing the show. Wonderful job once again. And yeah, recently, my good friend and friend of the show, Phil Esposito, just turned 80 years old, 80 years old, and he's 80, but still a young man. I love spending time with him because what a character. We have so many fond memories together. You know, my first season, 1977, he was one of the first New York Rangers that uh, I met and to this day remain good friends. So good to see that Espo's 80, healthy and happy, going strong. And I know you and Espo probably danced a lot to Elton John, who I got to see at the Garden in his farewell tour on Tuesday night. What a show. Let me just say this, though. There were a lot of people there sitting. And luckily for most of it, I was in a suite, so we were standing and dancing. But everyone's sitting, and I'm standing during Rocket Man, and there's people behind me sitting down. I know it's an older crowd. I get it. You're older. You don't want to stand. I get that. But you're at a concert, Ron. If you're at an Elton John concert, you got to be singing, dancing, tiny dancer. You're in your seat. Shameful. But anyways, I know you probably had memories in Elton's A-Day when those songs actually came out in the 70s and 80s with guys like Espo. Yeah, well, it was uh, Studio 54 days. It was him and Rod Stewart and the Bee Gees. Those three, to me, uh, bring back memories to that music. And I've gone to a concert at Madison Square Garden, listened to his music. And every song brings you back to a certain time for me. And that's the 80s or 70s and 80s. And Espo, I know Espo was a big fan of Elton John. Songs bring back good feelings. And for me, my good feelings is being a New York Ranger, Madison Square Garden, and being in New York. Well, while everyone was sitting, I'm still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still standing. Well, we're going to close out this episode. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify as well. We appreciate it. Number 10, Ronda Gay. Molly Walker. I'm Jake Brown. We'll return next week with a Wednesday release. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Enjoy the next three Ranger games. We'll chat with you all next week. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Up in the Blue Seats. They kept me young, man. Ha! <laughs> ha!